and welcome to the second episode of our Banking Litigation Podcast, bringing you your bite-sized updates on key case law and regulatory developments in the sector. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Great to have you with us. Uh, Do remember to subscribe for future episodes and you can check out our last episode too on all the usual platforms. But coming back to today, firstly just to introduce myself, I'm David Barr and I am joined as ever by our trusty Banking Litigation PSL, Kerry Morgan. Kerry, I would be lost in the world of banking litigation without you, so thanks for being our our banking litigation Sherpa. Um, And we're joined today by our guest, uh, Francis Furnival. Francis is one of our senior associates here in the banking litigation department. Francis, thanks for coming along today. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. (laughs) Brilliant. Uh, Well, let's crack on. Um, First of all, we're going to start with a recent disclosure judgment in the high-profile shareholder litigation uh, against Tesco. And this judgment came hot on the heels of the Tesco DPA being published, which relates to the same subject matter as the, as the civil proceedings. So it's been a, a busy time for Tesco, hasn't it, Kerry? Yes, a busy time indeed for Tesco. Thanks, David. So this is the case of Omers and Tesco. Um, and here the High Court has ruled on documents disclosed by the SFO to Tesco in the process of negotiating the DPA. And it said that those documents must now be disclosed in turn by Tesco, um, and that's in the civil action brought by its shareholders under Section 90A FISMA. So what's striking here is the fact that these documents had been obtained by the SFO from third parties using their Section 2 Criminal Justice Act statutory powers to compel their production. And they'd then been given to Tesco during the DPA process on the understanding that they would be kept confidential. Yet here they're now being handed over in the shareholder action. So it's a significant decision for listed companies who are the target defendants of these sorts of shareholder actions where they've published allegedly false or misleading financial information. There'll often be a connected criminal or regulatory investigation. And it's important to understand that documents provided by third parties to the SFO can end up being disclosed in follow-on civil proceedings. Right. Um, And Francis, you've got three cases on procedural developments covering jurisdiction, um, drafting defences and limitation. Um, There seems to be a a constant stream of judgments clarifying civil procedure, but I know you've um, picked out these three as the most likely to impact uh, the the types of claims faced by our, our banking clients. So what have you got for us? Thanks, David. Uh, yes, absolutely. First up, we have Kiefer Aislamientos versus AMS Mexico, which is a case on jurisdiction. As many of you will know, where a claimant needs permission to serve proceedings out of the jurisdiction, it has to show that a relevant jurisdiction gateway applies. So, for example, that the defendant has committed a breach of contract within the jurisdiction. And last year, the Supreme Court sought to clarify the gateway test and moved away from a good arguable case test to one with multiple limbs. While this clarified the test, the Supreme Court did not actually explain how the test would work in practice, and this is what the Court of Appeal sought to do here. Uh, The Court of Appeal analysed each limb of the gateway test in turn. I don't have time to go into detail here, but you can read our litigation blog post on this. There is a link in the show notes. Uh, But the key point I would like to draw out now is a conceptual dispute between the parties as to how to approach the gateway test. The question was whether the court should look at the arguments of both sides or whether the claimant just had to get over a set evidential threshold. And here the Court of Appeal said that the relative merits of the party should be assessed, so looking at both sides. 
and this approach will naturally be preferred by defendants. Uh, next up, SPI North versus Swiss Post International on drafting defences. Again, we have a litigation blog post on this one, uh, which you can find the link in the show notes. Here, the Court of Appeal confirmed that a defendant is under no obligation to make reasonable inquiries of third parties before pleading in its defence that it is unable to admit or deny an allegation and requires the claimant to prove it. So, sorry, Francis, am I, am I right in saying that in the new disclosure Hyatt that requires parties to check the position on documents with former employees? So if that extends to initial disclosure, will that rule have an impact on this decision? That's an interesting question. Actually, under the disclosure pilot, the obligation to disclose known adverse documents and to check what is known by former employees thankfully comes later at the usual disclosure stage. It doesn't extend to initial disclosure. Although I should say that the drafting of the relevant provisions is not particularly clear on the timing of the duty to disclose known adverse documents, but this is our view. Okay, thank you. Uh, and finally, Munro versus Bank of Scotland, uh, my final procedural case, and this one is on limitation. In this case, the High Court granted summary judgment in favour of the bank on, that, uh, on the basis that the claim against it was time barred. The court gave some helpful guidance on section 14a of the Limitation Act, in particular that this section doesn't extend the limitation period until every last particular of any breach is identified. Thanks, Francis. I'm, I'm particularly impressed with some of your pronunciation of the case names well, there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just moving on then, Kerry, so we've got a, uh, an important Court of Appeal decision on the SAMCO principle, um, which is relevant to such a range of banking cases from swaps, mis-selling, uh, to prospectus liability. And I understand that this was a, a case involving an auditor's negligence, but can you just explain the, the key points which have a sort of read-across value for the banks? Yeah, of course. Thank you, David. So this case is Manchester Building Society in Grant Thornton, and it's a Court of Appeal case, um, uh, and it's on the application of the SAMCO principle to cases involving advisors' negligence. So given that banks often sit in an advisory role, these sorts of developments really are hot topics for the sector. <clears throat> and that's why I've chosen it for this month's deep dive. And just before we go for that deep dive, uh, can you just clarify or remind us of the basic idea behind that, that SAMCO principle, just for my benefit and everything else? Sure, no problem. Um, so in a nutshell, uh, SAMCO considered the principle that even if loss is theoretically recoverable, it must have been within the scope of the defendant's duty of care. So probably the best way to explain this is to go back to Lord Hoffman's legal parable in Samco itself, in which he highlighted a distinction between, on the one hand, a duty to provide information, and on the other, a duty to provide advice. So Lord Hoffman gave the well-known example of a doctor consulted by a mountaineer who's concerned about his knee, the doctor negligently pronounces the knee fit, the mountaineer goes on an expedition and suffers an injury which is a foreseeable consequence of mountaineering but which has nothing to do with his knee. The doctor will not be liable even if the mountaineer would not have gone on the expedition if he had been told the truth. So on Lord Hoffman's analysis the injury has not been caused by the doctor because it would have occurred even if the pronouncement as to the state of the knee had been correct. So this is a classic information case. Um, actually, interestingly, every time I look at one of these cases to do with 
um, Samco, I just Google the word knee to find the bit. It's <laughs> 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 a relevance analysis. So anyway, coming back to this case, it concerned an auditor's liability for negligent advice regarding the accounting treatment of interest rate swaps. So when the auditor's negligence, um, the error came to light, the client had to break the swaps early, and that meant incurring fairly hefty mark-to-market break costs of over £32 million. So the Court of Appeal held that the auditor was not liable for these break costs, and this was the same result as the High Court, but for different reasons, and it's those reasons that I'm going to discuss now. So the High Court had not categorised the case as an advice or information case. Instead, it had approached the issue of liability by asking, in general terms, whether the auditor had assumed a responsibility for the break costs. And just for a very brief background on that, it's because in the High Court they've referred to Hughes Holland and a discussion about how those labels of advice and information um, are not particularly helpful or accurate. So... Here, the Court of Appeal said that the High Court had taken the wrong approach. It said it really is very important to consider at the outset whether it's an advice or an information case. And even if these labels aren't perfect, because you can have cases involving negligent advice in inverted commas, which still fall within the information category. So in this case, the Court of Appeal found that it was an information case, and this meant that the auditor was only responsible for the foreseeable consequences of the accounting information being wrong. So thinking back to Lord Hoffman and the Mountaineer's knee, this meant that the claimants had to prove the counterfactual, and that was that the break costs would not have been suffered if the auditor's accounting information had been correct. Now, I always find these sorts of counterfactuals really tricky to wrap my brain around. Because here we're talking about a parallel universe in which the auditor was correct about how the swaps could be accounted for, and therefore the claimant had no need to exercise the break clause early, and therefore continued to hold the swaps to maturity. So on the facts, the claimant was unable to make out its case on this basis. The discovery of the negligent accounting information basically just crystallised the mark-to-market losses, which would have been suffered even if the swaps had been held to term. So basically, even though the result was the same in the in the court of appeal, two decisions have, have come at it at, at sort of two different routes. Absolutely, and it just goes to show that this remains a really difficult area of the law. Thanks, Carrie. So I think we've covered quite a lot of ground there. It's definitely worth taking a look at the um, the bank litigation e bulletin that we've got on the on the court of appeal decision. And again, that link will be in the in the show notes. Um, just finally, then, Francis, for those who've been following the uh, first tower. Appeal. I think we've got some news, haven't we? Yes, we do. Thanks, David. Uh, the Supreme Court has refused permission to appeal the Court of Appeal's decision in First Tower, uh, which means that the key finding of the Court of Appeal will stand, that a non-reliance on representation clause was a term that excluded or restricted liability for representation and was therefore within the scope of Section 3 of the Misref Act and subject to the UPTA reasonableness test. Although this was a landlord and tenant case, it is of interest to financial institutions, which include non-reliance clauses in their contractual documentation as standard practice. Well, hopefully next time um, it is considered by the Court of Appeal in another case, it can do so in a banking litigation context. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Wonderful. Um, Well, that's it for this episode. Um, I hope you'll join us next month when we're back. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and do, of course, take a look at those links in the in the show notes for pointers towards some of the e-bulletins and blog posts um, on a number of the decisions that we've um, talked about today. 
It only remains for me to say thank you, as ever, to Kerry for your insights this month, and of course to Francis uh, for joining us as our guest uh, for this episode. We'd love to have you back again. Um, And thank you to those of you listening, wherever that is. Uh, Until next time, thank you and goodbye.